Welcome to the Summerton Church of God Sermon Podcast, a podcast to help you find life, freedom, and purpose in Jesus Christ. I started this little series, and I, I say little series, I don't think it's going to be a little series. It's probably going to be a, a, a rather lengthy series. But we just giving you an overview of, of the word that the Lord had given me for our church in 2021, and then last week we talked about how important it is that we be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and that we need spiritual strength for spiritual battles. But not only do we need spiritual strength for spiritual battles, we also need spiritual sight for the spiritual battle that we are in. And so what I want to talk to you about this morning is knowing your enemy. You say, now, Pastor, why is it so important that we know our enemy? Two things, and you may want to write these down. Number one, if you don't know who your enemy is, then you don't know how to prepare to stand against your enemy. Any great coach will tell you that before you play a team, you need to know that team. You need to know their weaknesses. You need to know their strengths. You need to know their patterns. And that the better you know your enemy, the better you know the team that you're going to be playing, the better you're able to stand against and play, listen to me, and play not to lose, but to play to win. And so you and I need to know who our enemy is so that we can properly prepare ourselves. And I believe that That's one of the primary things that God has called me as a pastor to do is to help you to prepare for the enemy that we are facing. But not only do we need to know our enemy because if we don't, we won't know how to prepare for him, but we also need to know our enemy because if we don't know who our enemy is, we end up fighting the wrong enemy. We end up making an enemy out of something or somebody that's not really our enemy. And so we need to know today who our enemy is and not just who he is, but but we also need to know that he has a plan and what that plan looks like. And so what I wanna begin to do this morning in talking about our enemy is this, there's two things that you need to know about him and the first thing is this, And that is that the enemy is very real. Now notice Peter here in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8, he gives us clarity. There there is no gray area whatsoever about who our enemy is. And, And notice what he says about our enemy. He said, be alert and be of sober mind. Because he said that your enemy, the devil... Now notice right there, he is very, very clear about who our enemy is. And he says to be sober, to be alert, because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. So so there's no doubt about who our enemy is. That's why Paul said in Ephesians 6 6 and 12, he says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. We need to know who our enemy is, and our enemy is Satan and his horde of demons. But two things that we need to know about this enemy this morning, and the first thing is this, and that is that our enemy, the devil, is real. 
Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I never thought that I would have to stand in church as a pastor and try to convince people that the devil is real. And not just people, but believers, Christians, followers of Christ. I just read a survey that was taken recently, just this past week, and the results from that survey revealed that 50% of Christians do not believe in a real devil. That he is nothing more than just a symbol of evil. I'm telling you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, the devil is more than just a symbol of evil. He is real. He is a real person. I'll tell you who did believe in him. The apostle Paul believed in him. And many times in his books, the apostle Paul writes about the devil. I'll tell you who else believed in him. The apostle Peter believed in him and wrote about him as we saw just a moment ago and identified him as our enemy. I'll tell you who did believe in him and that was the brother of Jesus, the apostle James who wrote the book of James and not only did he believe in the devil, he wrote about the devil in his book. And all of that is fine and good, but what about Jesus? Did Jesus believe in the devil? Did, did Jesus believe in Satan? Because really that's my primary concern is I wanna know did Jesus believe in him? And we find more than once, we don't have the time this morning to, to, to look at all the references in scripture where Jesus himself talked about the enemy. In John chapter eight, Jesus is talking to a group of, of, of Jews who have believed on him and he looked at them and he says that if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And those Jewish believers looked back at Jesus and said, why are you talking to us about freedom? We've, we've never been in bondage. <laughs> and of course they had spent pretty much their whole heritage in bondage. They had been in bondage to Egypt. They had been in bondage to Babylon. They had been in bondage to Assyria. They had been in bondage to Rome. But they said, why are you talking to us about freedom? Because we are children of Abraham. And when they said that we're children of Abraham, they were saying, we're children of God. So we've never been in bondage. And, and Jesus responded to them and said this. He said, no. He said that if you were children of Abraham, if you were children of God, you wouldn't be acting the way that you're acting. I'll tell you who your father is. He said, you belong to your father, the devil. Well, Jesus didn't pull any punches, did he? He said, you, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and you need to know this morning that the enemy's primary purpose is to destroy, to steal, and to kill you. And he said he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there's no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language because he is a liar, and he's the father of lies. Did Jesus believe in him and write about him? Yes, he did. John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus identified him as the thief, and he says that the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. So Jesus talked about him in John chapter 8. He talked about him in John chapter 10, and then he talks about him again here in Luke chapter 13, verse 16. And let me tell you what's going on here in this passage of Scripture. Jesus is teaching in the synagogue. And while he is teaching in the synagogue, he notices a woman in the crowd who has been crippled by an infirmity for 18 years of her life to the point that she was bent over and could not even stand up straight. 
And right in the middle of Jesus' teaching, he looks back and he sees that woman and he said, honey, come up here. And Jesus reaches out and he lays his hand on this woman and she is healed. She immediately straightens up for the first time in 18 years. And the moment that she straightens up, the ruler of the synagogue gets upset because he sees Jesus healing a woman on the Sabbath and looks at that as though Jesus was working on the Sabbath. And do you know what this ruler of the synagogue said to the people there that day? He said, listen, don't come on the Sabbath to get healed. You can come, and their Sabbath was on Saturday, so he was saying, you can come Sunday, and you can come Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday or Friday, but don't come on the Sabbath to be healed. How ridiculous is that? And Jesus looked at that ruler of the synagogue, and he called him a hypocrite. And he said, I guarantee you, when you got up this morning, you untied your ox or you untied your donkey and you led them to water. Isn't that work on the Sabbath? And notice what Jesus said. He said, then shouldn't this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, who was it that bound her? Who was it that was causing this infirmity in her body? Whom Satan has kept bound for 18 long years. He said, shouldn't she be set free on the Sabbath day from what had bound her? Yes, he believed in Satan and he wrote about him. Look here in Luke chapter 22. He predicts that Peter would deny him three times. And he said to Peter, he said, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you. Notice, not just Peter, but all the disciples. He has asked to sift all of the disciples as wheat. But Jesus said, Simon, I'm praying for you that your faith may not fail. Peter, you are going to deny me, but I'm praying that you will not that, that this will not allow you to con completely abandon your faith to completely abandon who you know that I truly am and he said I'm praying that you're going to recover from this and he said that when you do recover when you have turned back that you will strengthen your brothers but who was it that was desiring to sift the, the disciples who was it that was desiring to destroy them he said it was Satan and then we see another passage of scripture here in Luke chapter 10 verse 18. And let me tell you what Jesus is saying here in this passage. He has sent his disciples out, 70 of them, in pairs. And he tells them to go out and do ministry. They go out and they do the ministry that Jesus has called them to do. And after coming back from that missionary trip, they come to Jesus and with joy in their heart, they said, Jesus, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And Jesus looked back at him as if it wasn't that big a deal. And he said, hey, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now I'm gonna tell you in a moment what he's referring to there. But then right after this, Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I'm giving you power. I'm giving you authority to tread upon serpents and upon scorpions and over all of the power of the enemy. And he said this, and nothing shall by any means harm you. But then he said this, he said, but don't rejoice because demons are subject to you in my name. He said, instead rejoice because your name 
sins are written in the Lamb's book of life. Let me tell you something that you ought to get excited about today. Not just the fact that demons are subject to you as a child of God. Not just that you have power and authority over all the forces of hell. But you ought to be rejoicing this morning because your name has been written down in the Lamb's book of life. And you'll live with God forever in heaven. Oh, somebody give God a good praise right there. Hallelujah. But what was Jesus talking about when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He's referring to that time in history when Satan, filled with iniquity in his heart, sinned and rebelled against God, and as a result of that, God kicked him out of heaven. We read about it in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28. Now, you need to write these passages of Scripture down. Because you need to be able to give an answer for the hope that you have that lies within you. If somebody asks you if the devil's real, you need to be able to take him to some scriptures to prove it to them. That he's not just a symbol of evil. Now in Isaiah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 28, when you go back and read it, you're going to find out that both of these passages are about the king of Babylon. Babylon is a picture of the world, that world system through which Satan and his demonic spirits work to carry out their plans. And so he's talking here to the king of Babylon, who is a guy by the name of Tyre, and that because of his pride as a king, that he would fall. But really what the passage of scripture is about, it goes deeper than that. It's about the spirit that was working through this king of Babylon. Satan himself. And notice, notice what the prophet writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He said, how you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. And notice what happens here with Lucifer. You've got to understand that when Satan was first created by God as an angel, his name was Lucifer, which means light, which means a bearer of light. Now you know why Paul, and we'll talk more about this next week, week talks about how that Satan will masquerade himself as an angel of light, trying to deceive. But his name was Lucifer, which means a light bearer. It means brightness. He was full of the glory. He was full of the life and the light of God. But notice, some iniquity arose in his heart. And he said in his heart, notice, he may not have ever publicly said it with his mouth. But he was saying this to himself in his heart. You need to know this morning, God knows what's in your heart. I don't know what's in your heart. I don't know the motivation of your heart. But God does. And notice, it says that you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly. Notice it's all about him and his will. 
It's pride that's rising up in his heart. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zephon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. In other words, Lucifer, because of iniquity in his heart, says I'm gonna keep ascending and keep ascending and keep ascending and keep ascending until I'm like God himself. And the other angels are going to worship me the way that they worship God. And people are going to worship me and give glory to me the same way that they give worship and that they give glory to God. But how many of you know God don't share his throne with anybody? And God doesn't share his glory with anybody. But notice what happened. You are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Ezekiel wrote about it in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 12, talking about Lucifer before he fell. You were the seal of perfection. You were full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. He said, I ordained and anointed you as the mighty angelic guardian. Another translation says that he was the anointed cherub that covers. How many of you remember on the Ark of the Covenant that there was the mercy seat and the blood would be applied there to the mercy seat and it was there that the presence of God would meet with the, with, 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 with the high priest and, and, and on, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant there were two angels called cherubims and their wings would cover the Ark of the Covenant, the seat of the Ark of the Covenant. They would cover the presence of God. That's the rank of angel that Satan was. Satan was a cherubim. He was an anointed cherub that covers. And notice it says, you had access to the holy mountain of God. He could come in and out of the presence of God. And of course, in the mountain of God, you're always in the presence of God. And then it says that you were blameless in all you did from the day that you were created until the day that evil was found in you. You were perfect at one time. You were blameless at one time, but then iniquity, pride started rising in your heart and evil was found in you. And your heart, he said, was filled with pride because of all your beauty. Your wisdom was corrupted by the love of splendor. So what did God say? I threw you to the ground. That's what Jesus is talking about when he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. We see it even written about in Revelation 12, where it says that war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon who is Satan and the dragon and his angels and you need to know we'll see it in a minute that Satan has angels like God has angels and like God has angels that carry out his will and carry out his plan Satan also has angels demons that carry out his purposes that carry out his plans and then notice it says but the dragon was not strong enough he may be strong but but he's not strong enough. He may be powerful, but he's not powerful enough. He may be wise, but he is not wise enough. Amen? But notice, he was not strong enough, and what happened? They lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth, and I love this, and 
his angels with him. Verse 4 tells us like this, that the tail of the dragon swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth so that when Satan was kicked out of heaven, he was able to influence a third of the angels of heaven to join with him in his rebellion against God so that it wasn't just Satan that was kicked out of heaven. It was also all of his angels and all of his demons. And that's what Jesus was talking about when his disciples came back and said, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said, well, they ought to be because I saw Satan fall like lightning. He tried to rise to a place in heaven where he was beside and like God and get the same glory, praise, and honor as God was getting. And God said, we're not going to have any of that. And God booted him right out of heaven. And he fell. But hold on a minute before you get too excited. He fell. And his demons fell. Where? To the earth. And folks say, well, when did all this happen? I have my opinion. Is it okay if I share my opinion with you this morning? Now, now please understand, this is my opinion. Not just my opinion, but I think also the opinion of many others. It's, it's, it's called the gap theory. And you find it in Genesis chapter one. Now I have to be careful sometimes when I'm preparing a message because I have to remind myself that not everything that interests me is interesting to everybody else. And not everything that intrigues me intrigues everything else. And not everything that I'm passionate about is everybody passionate about. I'm passionate about the word of God and I'm very intrigued and interested by all of this. But in Genesis chapter one, verse one, the Bible says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But then notice when we go to verse two, it says that now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. God created the heavens and the earth, but when you get to verse two, something has happened to the heavens and the earth that God created. They're now formless. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word, you could read it like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth and the earth became void and formless and empty and darkness covered the face of the deep. And so what a lot of people believe, including myself, so the reason it's called the gap theory is that Satan fell sometime between Genesis chapter one, verse one, and Genesis chapter two, verse two. Because when you come to Genesis chapter two, verse two, what's going on? Chaos. And anywhere that the enemy is working, there is chaos. And there is confusion. And there is darkness. This is where some people think, and I know it's getting really crazy and weird in here right now. That's all right. You feel like you're in a sci-fi movie or something. But this is where a lot of people believe that it was during that age where all the dinosaurs and you know, the prehistoric things that we've, we've read about, that we, that, that we get that information from fossils and things of that nature. It's very interesting to me, very intriguing to me. But that's why they call it the gap theory. It's because they believe that between verse one of Genesis one and verse two of Genesis one, 
is when Satan fell and created all that havoc and darkness and that when God begins to create in verse three, because notice what God says in verse three, let there be light and there was light. You say, well, what's so important about that, Pastor? Because he doesn't create the sun, the moon, and the stars until a couple of days later. Isn't that where we get our light from? But God don't need sun, and God don't need a moon, and God don't need stars. God himself is light. And God looked over that darkness and that chaos that was a result of the fall of the enemy, and he said, enough, let there be light. And how many of you know that the moment that the light comes on, that the light has the power to expose and to expel the darkness. That's why I tell you all the time, let's go be light in this community because we are the light of God. We are the light of the world and we need to go out and expose and eliminate the darkness of this world. Somebody give God a good praise in the house today. Hallelujah. But in Matthew chapter 12, now stay with me. In Matthew chapter 12, they bring a man to Jesus who is blind, he can't see, and he cannot speak. And do you know what Jesus does? He lays his hands on this man who cannot see and who cannot speak, and he casts demons out of him. Because that was the reason that the man was blind. And the reason that the man could not speak, there was something spiritual that was binding that man. Well, there were some Pharisees standing around when Jesus did that. And here's what they accused Jesus of. They said, he's casting out demons by the power of Satan. Now I'm paraphrasing here, okay? I think Jesus probably thought to himself, how stupid, how, how ridiculous. And he looked at those guys and he said, don't you know that a kingdom that's divided against itself can't stand? And don't you know that a house that's divided against itself can't stand? So why in the world would Satan want to cast himself out of somebody? And, that, and that's when he said these words there in Matthew 12, 26. He says, if Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. <laughs> How then can his kingdom stand? He's real, folks. Paul knew it. Peter knew it. James knew it. Jesus knew it. And notice what Jesus tells us here. It's something that you need to know. Satan has a kingdom. And it's called the kingdom of darkness. And, and, and notice what Paul says about that kingdom in Ephesians 6 and 12. He said, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but here's what we wrestle against. This is who our battle is against. It's the kingdom of darkness. It's the kingdom of Satan. And I want you to notice how he has organized his angels very similarly to how God has organized his. Because God has archangels very powerful angels. He has cherubs and seraphim. And then he has angels who are messengers that just carry out his work and his will in the earth. 
We'll look at his kingdom, how he has his angels, his demons organized. He said, our struggle's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities. That would be like those archangels, the, the, the really powerful demons in Satan's army. And then he says, and also we wrestle against the powers of this dark world. Now here's what I believe he's talking about there when he talks about the powers of this dark world. I believe it's these spirits that have infiltrated things like our political systems in this world. Because you've got to know that men like Hitler, there was an evil spirit influencing them. You've got to know that men like Stalin and Osama bin Laden, they had evil spirits that were working through them. That's why terrorists will get in a plane and fly into World Trade Centers is because they are under the influence of demonic spirits. And notice they come from hell because hell is referred to as darkness, that they were cast into outer darkness. And so these are those spirits that are the rulers over that dark world. And I'm telling you, listen to me, that's why you got to be careful about what you let your kids watch. That's why you got to be careful about what you watch. That's why you got to be careful about some of the video games you let them play. That's why you got to be careful about some of the books that they read. I'm telling you, because there is a system behind it all of evil that the enemy is trying to use to influence people for his good. It is a kingdom that he has established. Let me tell you something. This is a very sophisticated battle that we are in. And even though you can't see it because it's an invisible battle, doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that what we cannot see is really what is real. And, and, and what we cannot see is in that spiritual realm. But I want to remind you this morning, just like Elisha had to remind his prophet, that if you could see in that spiritual realm today, you would see that they that are for you are greater than those that are against you and greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world hallelujah so he's real but not only is he real and I'm just going to just give me five, a few more minutes he has a plan he has a plan Notice Paul said it like this. He says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the devil's schemes, his strategies, his plan. Paul said it like this to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2 and 11. He said that we cannot afford to be ignorant of the devil's devices because he's going to a whiteboard right now. This is how I see it. And with his horde of demons, he's devising a plan. He's devising a strategy as to how he can steal, kill, and destroy you. And let me tell you, let me just share with you one thing, and I'm going to talk about a few others next week. But I'm going to share with you one thing today that is the plan of the enemy to do in your life. And that is that the enemy wants to distract you. He wants to distract you. He wants to distract you from everything good that God has for you in your life. That's why Paul, at the beginning of Ephesians, he talks to these Ephesian believers about who they are in Christ and what's available to them in Christ. 
and the kind of life that they're supposed to live, a holy life, now that they are followers of Jesus Christ, that they are to be light and they are to eliminate the darkness. But the enemy wants to distract you from your high calling of God in Christ Jesus. And what he wants to do is get you focused on lesser things so that you're neglecting the greater things in your life. That's why he'll send the wrong man into your life, young lady, and tell you, I'm convinced this is the man that you need to fulfill God's purpose in your life because that's the way it'll start. But then after you say, I do, you find out this ain't what you thought it was, that the enemy pulled one on you. That's why, young man, you've got to be careful with these young ladies that come into your life to make sure that the enemy is not sending them to distract you. That's why you've got to be careful, businessman and businesswoman, to not fall in love with money because the enemy will use money to distract you. Jesus said it like this. He said, that I plant the word but then the enemy comes along with the cares of this life and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things and what does he do he chokes out the word of God he gets you distracted he gets your focus off where your focus ought to be and gets your focus in places that it ought not to be he wants to distract you and not just you individually he wants to distract us as a church You remember what Paul said? We're not wrestling against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in high places. Look at this passage of scripture. First Samuel chapter 17, and this is where I'm gonna close. Tanya, you can go ahead and help me. Start playing. I'll preach all day long. Amen. I love doing this more than anything in the world. This is, this is the story here of David and Goliath. David's dad calls him in one day and says, David, I got some supplies here. I want you to take them down to the battlefield where your other brothers are. <laughs> David gets the supplies, goes down to the battlefield. And when he gets down there, the first thing he notices is this big, giant, uncircumcised Philistine taunting and defying the armies of God. So he begins to ask around, who is this? And you gotta understand, every time Goliath would come out, come out into the valley and begin to taunt the men of God, now the Bible says it like this, it said they would get up that morning and man, they would be, woo, time to go to battle, woo, time to fight, man, they just, they're just screaming and hollering. But then the moment that Goliath would step into the valley, their hooping and hollering would stop and they'd run back in fear and out of fear to their tents. David said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine who keeps defying the armies of God? And then he was asking around. He said, well, what, what's the king going to do for whoever goes out and defeats him? And he said, we're not going to just stand around here and tolerate this giant defying the armies of God. Well, he was going around camp talking to some guys about that. And word got back to his oldest brother, Eliab. And Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard David speaking with the men and he burned with anger at him. Now you know that Eliab still got to probably be upset with David because when Samuel sold up to anoint the next king of Israel at Jesse's house, the first one that he looked at was Eliab. And he thought, man, surely this is the one that God's anointed to be king. Man, he looked at him, he's so tall, dark, and handsome. 
And that's when the Lord spoke to Samuel and said, listen, I don't judge a man based on his external appearance, but on his heart. And so he passed Eliabai and all the other brothers until he got to the youngest, David. And that's where he anointed David to be king. And Eliab's still sore about that. And when he heard David speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked him, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Now, listen, David took care of that before he left. He got people to take care of the sheep while he was gone. Put all of his affairs in order. But then his brother looked at him and said, I know how conceited you are, how wicked your heart is. You came down here only to watch the battle. Here's what David says. He says, now what have I done? Can I speak? Now let me tell you what the Holy Spirit showed me was going on right here. The enemy's trying to distract David. The real enemy was Goliath. Now what David could have done is he could have become preoccupied defending himself to his brother. And before he knew it, he could have been in a fight with his brother Eliab. But here's what I believe that David thought. You know what, Eliab? I'm not here to fight against you. I'm here to fight for you. I'm here to fight against Goliath. And then I love, I love, you got to see these things in scripture. The very next verse, and David turned away. Lib, you're not my fight. I'm not here to fight you. I'm here to fight for you. I'm here to fight that uncircumcised Philistine out there that is doing his best to come against the people of God and to keep the people of God from where God is wanting to take them. You listen to me this morning. That's how he will try to distract you. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness in high places. And if you're not careful, the devil, and if we're not careful in the church, the devil will get us fighting against each other when we ought to be fighting for each other and fighting together against one common enemy who is the devil. Come on, stand with me this morning. Come on, give God a praise today for the word of God. We, we need to understand this morning, we have one common enemy. Do you know how effective we would be if we would all just come together in unity and together fight one enemy? I've said it before and I'll say it again. I'm not here to fight against you. I'm here to fight for you. And I'm not going to allow the enemy to distract me from who the real enemy is because that's what Satan would like. He would like, first of all, for you to not believe that he's real, for you to believe that he's just a symbol of evil. And then he would also like for you to believe that he's not your real enemy. Listen, it's not the flesh and blood. Do you know those terrorists that, fell, that flew into the World Trade, uh, World Trade Centers? Those men were not our enemy. The spirit that influenced them, that is our enemy. Politicians are not our enemy. 
It's the spirit that has infiltrated the political system. It's the system that's working through the world in order to help the enemy fulfill his plans and his strategies and his devices and his schemes. It's that spirit that we are to stand against. And that's why we've got to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might and put on the whole armor of God so that we can stand in this evil day. And having done all that we can do, stand, 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 stand. Come on, shout it with me, church. Stand, stand, stand. Say, we will stand. We will stand. Say it again. We will stand. Again, we will stand. Come on and give God a praise in the house today. Well, I hope that you were blessed and inspired by today's message. We here at Summerton Church of God believe that God is a God who still does miracles. And we're seeing it on a weekly basis. People's lives being transformed by the power of God. Being saved, healed, and delivered for the glory of God. And we want you to experience for yourself. So why don't you come and be our guest one Sunday here at Summerton Church of God. I look forward to personally meeting you.